Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, December 16th, marks our 168th program. Today's featured Actus solution is the 2021 Actus Pocket Guide. The 2021 Actus Pocket Guide is your essential CDI resource. It includes updates to clinical diagnostic standards, official coding guidelines, ICD-10-CM codes, CMS-HCCs, and CDI critical thinking tips. It is co-written by our CDI Education Director, Laurie Prescott, as well as a practicing physician steeped in the latest Physician Documentation Terminology, Dr. James Manns. As a special bonus with every purchase, you'll also have access to the content in an interactive, customizable online tool, which will allow you to easily access your favorite CDI information anywhere, anytime. Order it on hcmarketplace.com. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Viral sepsis and COVID-19. I'm joined today by my co-host at left, Sharm Brody. Sharm is an instructor for the CDI boot camps as well as a subject matter expert for Actus. She has more than 35 years of experience in the healthcare industry, including multiple areas of nursing and a variety of roles. You've probably seen her uh, as she's a member of our certification committee, Actus regulatory committee, and as a regular contributor to our publications, including CDI Journal and CDI Strategies. I want to welcome her back on the program. So welcome, Sharm. Thank you, Brian. Happy holidays. Yes, you too. Next, I'd like to introduce our uh, special guest today, making her, she's got a repeat appearance. I'm not sure how many times she's been on the show, but always uh, welcome Erica Reamer. Uh, Erica is the president of Erica Reamer, M- Erica Reamer MD Inc. in Beachwood, Ohio. Um, Dr. Reamer was a practicing emergency physician for 25 years and has extensive coding, CDI, and ICD-10 experience. Prior to joining the consulting ranks, she was a physician advisor at a large multi-hospital system for four years. She's written numerous articles. We were just chatting before the show. She's making the rounds as an expert on Talk 10 Tuesdays, which is a weekly podcast. recommend you check out. She's a member of our Actus Advisory Board, serves on the ACPA Board of Directors, and I'm pleased to have her on the show. So welcome, Erica. Thank you, Brian, and happy holidays to everybody as well. Yeah, happy holidays. All right, let's start, as we always do, with a poll question related to today's topic. I'm going to go ahead and launch that now. You should be seeing that on your screen. Um, Question reads, how would you describe your organization's ability to compliantly capture and report viral sepsis? Would you describe it as excellent, uh, meaning maybe if just a few clarifications are needed? Would you describe your ability to capture it as fair? Maybe you can report it, but it does take effort to get there. Uh, poor, um, I'll leave it up to you what poor means, but I've described it as rarely documented, or maybe you can't capture it at all in the coding. Uh, don't know or not applicable. Again, how would you describe your organization's ability to compliantly capture and report viral sepsis? Excellent, fair, 
poor, don't know, or not applicable. And you know, uh, keep those questions coming in and, and your comments coming in. So I would like to hear your experiences trying to capture this diagnosis in the documentation. We're gonna be sharing a few tips today, but uh, as I always do, we'll be monitoring those comments and uh, trying to work them into the, the flow of the conversation. I'm gonna go ahead and close this out. We've got about 75% of our audience that have voted. All right. Well, as I mentioned, our Special guest today is Erica, Erica Reamer. Erica, welcome to the show and thanks for being a part of the Actus podcast. Um, so today's topic came as a, a question from one of our listeners and I really appreciate when you guys do send those in. This was a topic suggestion, so we're, we're gonna tackle it today. Uh, as I understand it, not being a clinician, Erica, the, the, the big problem with viral sepsis is, is the lack of a standard, easily accessible definition. Maybe you could start with just what is viral sepsis and what are its key clinical indicators? Well, first, Brian, thanks for having me on the program today. Yeah. Um, in order to discuss this topic, we first need to review the general definition of sepsis. So sepsis is heralded by life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Think of it as an exaggerated or excessive systemic response to an otherwise contained infection. It is often not due to direct attack by organisms on those distant organs, but from a reaction caused by cascades of hormones, coagulation factors, or immune or inflammatory mediators. Sepsis can ensue from all kinds of infections. The most common is bacterial, and that's why we empirically treat most septic patients with antibiotics. Even bacterial infection can have negative cultures. However, sepsis can also result from fungal, parasitic, and viral infections. When sepsis results from a viral infection, it is viral sepsis. What are the clinical indicators of sepsis? This is the basis of that sepsis two versus sepsis three dilemma. There are no gold standard clinical criteria. Surviving Sepsis Campaign originally laid out Sepsis 2 trying to answer this question. The components of the general SIRS or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome criteria were fever or hypothermia, tachycardia, tachypnea, and abnormal white blood cell count. Patients with sepsis often do demonstrate some combination of these clinical indicators, but patients with everyday infections like strep throat can also meet this criteria without having sepsis. It is not sufficient. Sepsis 3 requires organ dysfunction as part of its requirement. Actually, sepsis 2 always included other organ dysfunctions in its set of criteria, which could indicate sepsis, like altered mental status, increased creatinine, hyperbilirubinemia, and thrombocytopenia. What does that sound like? Sepsis 3, right? The point is the infection has gotten more impactful than just red hot skin from a cellulitis or an inflamed bladder from a urinary tract infection. It is systemic with organ dysfunction. The organ dysfunction doesn't have to be found in the SOFA score, although it may be and often is. The SOFA score comprises six general bodily functions, respiration, coagulation, liver, cardiovascular, central nervous system, and kidney function. It was meant to prognosticate mortality from sepsis, not be the diagnostic criteria for it. But if a patient meets SOFA criteria in the context of an infection, they likely have sepsis. 
So as I said before, if the etiologic agent, which is called caused sepsis, is a virus, the patient has viral sepsis. Viruses which commonly cause sepsis vary depending on the age of the patient and other factors. Herpes simplex virus, influenza, and dengue are common viruses causing sepsis. And now we have COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to, Dr. Reber, I'm going to switch gears on you a minute. This is Charm. And I'm going to have you, instead of talking clinically, tell me about any of the relevant uh, guidance for coding and reporting when a CDI specialist finds that the patient has viral sepsis. So what guidelines and what coding clinics or um, any of the advice would you give them? Well, sepsis is coded as, coded as sepsis, regardless of what organism is causing it. So in the case of viral sepsis, which is specified as such, the code A41.89, other specified sepsis, is utilized, even though that strictly lives in the subcategory called other bacterial diseases, because there is no unspecified or other specified viral sepsis. What CDIS's encoders need to know about the coding and reporting is that all sepsis now is the condition formerly known as severe sepsis. If the provider links sepsis with organ dysfunction, which stems from the sepsis, the coder may pick up the code R65.20, severe sepsis without septic shock, even if the provider never mentions the word severe. And this is fortunate because there no longer is a category of severe sepsis, and providers hate using outdated terminology. I personally try to get the providers to use the macro sepsis due to and then they should name whatever the infection is, with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction is manifested by, and then here they specify the organ dysfunction. I think this serves two purposes. It helps them mentally review whether the patient has checked the necessary boxes, like is there an infection, and is there organ dysfunction, and then it gives the coder permission to pick up R65.20. If the provider were to document severe viral sepsis, as a CDIS or a coder, I would check to make sure there was sepsis-related organ dysfunction as my clinical validation exercise. If so, I would pick up A41.89 and R65.20. If not, I would double check to see if I were missing organ dysfunction. Oh, thank you. All right, appreciate that, Erica. Just monitoring some of the questions coming in, but uh, good stuff there. Um, you know, how we title of the show is viral sepsis and COVID-19. So could we talk about viral sepsis in relation to COVID-19? Um, of course, we're seeing a, a big uh, second spike nationally. And I have to think this scenario will be a common one for CDI specialists reviewing the record. Um, I actually saw a comment from a listener that says, our hospital told us we are not allowed to query for viral sepsis um, secondary to due to COVID. So, um, interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, you know, there's a wide spectrum of manifestation of disease from COVID 19, from asymptomatic to moribund. Our ICUs are filled with patients who have viral sepsis from COVID 19. The providers need to document that the illness has caused organ dysfunction, though. Remember, I said it could result from hormonal coagulation factors, inflammatory mediators, or immunologic abnormalities. Well, this has been seen in many cases of COVID 19, and it can cause devastating disease. 
So one of the criteria I teach is the patient needs to be sick, in all caps, to be considered sepsis. And the reason I point this out is there is organ dysfunction, which can result from COVID-19 alone, which may be questioned as to whether it constitutes criteria for sepsis. So I'm thinking of something like the loss of sense or taste or smell, which is probably due to direct neurologic effects. And also, I think a happy hypoxemic who you're sending home, those are not sepsis. Now, the latter patient, if they deteriorate and return with acute hypoxic respiratory failure, then sepsis could very well be a valid diagnosis. I would have the providers document sepsis due to COVID-19 with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction as evidenced by, and then like say, metabolic encephalopathy, AKI, and acute hypoxic respiratory failure. They have their ducks in a row. The coder can pull R65.20, and auditors have the dots connected for them. CMS just made COVID-19 an exclusion for the SEP1 core bundle. So this should alleviate your provider's concern that they need to jump through the core measure hoops if they say sepsis. Now, the reality is they never had to do it. If it's viral sepsis, um, it's actually an exclusion. But CMS just recently made COVID-19 an explicit exclusion. Hmm. All right. Okay. All right, now I'm going to jump jump in with another question for you, Dr. Rima. So you've been on top of monitoring compliant coding and billing um, of COVID-19 uh, in general with some of the articles that you've published on the web. I've actually read some. Uh, is there anything you are seeing that is a particular source of confusion or are there any eminent guidance from coding clinic or new codes um, coming out that you want to discuss? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm actually doing a whole webinar on COVID-19 this afternoon. Um, on January 1st, we will be switching out the non-specific codes for specific codes for COVID-19. So, for instance, exposure to COVID-19 will now be Z20.822, and history of COVID-19 will be Z86.16. There's also going to be a code for pneumonia from coronavirus disease 2019, which is J12.82. And you do use that as a secondary diagnosis after U07.1, which is the code for COVID-19. The most common question I've been getting lately has, relates to whether the code for an acute COVID-19 infection, U07.1, should be used or whether it should be coded as historical in the context of continued pneumonia or some other COVID-19 type manifestation. So I look at the time course and the intent of the provider. And if the documentation doesn't support an accurate telling of the story, I recommend query. So one of the peculiarities of this virus and the testing is that the illness often has a prolonged or bumpy course. And, and I think the average is like 10 days and it, it's you know, not unusual for a patient to be there for three weeks. And sometimes the test for an acute infection stays persistently or recurrently positive long after the acute viremic infection has subsided. Patients often get transferred to other levels of care or facilities or get readmitted. So if the infection is really historical, you either need to use a sequela of code, B94.8, if there is some um, condition which is a sequela of the previous COVID-19, because the B94.8 did not get a COVID-19 specific analog, or you might need to use the history of COVID-19 code. But of course, as you well know, Sharm, the provider documentation has to support whatever code we pick. Mm 
Thank you. I agree. All right. Thanks, Erica. This has been some great, great information you've been sharing here. Um, and I know recently, too, we were just chatting before the show that AHA has just put out some new guidance, uh, frequently asked questions that I'll put the link in the show notes, as I always do. That was released December 11th. So I recommend you folks check that out as well. Um, you know, being a physician yourself, Erica, what advice would you have for educating physicians on documentation on some of the concepts we've discussed today? I think more than ever these days, there's a need to try to head off the need for query, as we've seen hospitals at capacity, very busy physicians, trying to eliminate those hassles um, for busy physicians working to save lives, literally, at this time. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm reading some of the comments here, and just, um, you know, some folks are saying, uh, gosh, let's see if I can find it. There's so many that my, <laughs> that the uh, little chat box has been swamped, but we have some folks saying that they're getting a lot of pushback from their attendings on this issue. And and um, this, I, I don't know if you have any just general advice on, on the education piece or trying to get ahead of the need to just keep sending queries. Well, you know, I think the most important thing to do is first get the providers to understand sepsis. So there's still a lot of consternation over sepsis two versus sepsis three. So, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this, Brian, one of the accomplishments I'm most proud of is a set of provider education modules I designed to teach CDI practices and principles. In addition to the general excellent documentation practices and CDI modules, I created one to dispel the confusion about sepsis. So I think that if providers understand the concept of sepsis and can accurately diagnose it, if they learn to link the sepsis with the organ dysfunction in the documentation, and if there's consistency in the documentation, providers will stave off the need to be queried for clinical validation. But the thing is, you know, I think the issue is they're concerned that having COVID just seems like that's, isn't that just enough? And I guess the answer to them is, you know, think about it. There's a spectrum. There's patients who aren't even sick at all, and there are patients who are who die of it, and then there are patients in between. And the patients in between, some of them have sepsis, and that helps distinguish them from the other patients. So I think it's really important to educate the doctors that what you want to be doing is telling the truth and telling the story. I never worry about educating ourselves out of a job, though, because with all the conditions, evolving guidelines, and new providers, we at Actus have job security. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> always that which is which is kind of nice especially in these times really appreciate it erica some great great commentary on this um all right i'm going to go ahead and actually share the poll results again so we did ask you folks how would you describe your organization's ability to compliantly capture and report viral sepsis so i'm going to go ahead and share these results should be seeing them on your screen about now uh, so here are our results. Uh, 31% describe their ability to, their organization's ability, excuse me, to compliantly capture and report this condition as excellent. Few clarifications needed. So bravo for those 31%. Uh, 36%, that's our largest bucket, described it as fair. They can report it, but it does take effort. 16% say poor. Either it's rarely documented and or they can't capture it in the coding. 12% don't know. 
this, but this one probably comes from CDI professionals not knowing how the final record's coded out all the time. So that's fair. And then 4% not applicable. So curious what you think of these results, Erica. Does anything here surprise you or not surprise you? Well, what I do see is two-thirds of you are getting it when um, it uh, is likely present, which is good. Um, I think the the people who are having issues, um, I, you know, to me, whenever I have a problem in, you know, as a consultant, when I go in and there's a problem, I try to identify what's causing the problem and what I need to do to fix it. And I can tell you that almost universally, um, the problem is one of education. So I need to determine what it is the what what is the the knowledge gap, and then I try to make sure that we you know address that so that the providers know what to do from there. So I I think that you know they really have no idea like like most doctors don't really have a clue about DRGs. They don't understand what happens. They do their coding and they code for their own billing, and that's the end of it. So I think that you need to try to figure out what it, what is the, you know, the barrier to them um, documenting viral sepsis, and then try to overcome it. What do you think, Sharm? I absolutely agree with what you said. Most of the time, it is related to education. And sometimes it they need somebody, honestly, from the outside to determine what the problem is sometimes. It's easy for me to see a problem in somebody else's organization that it is for me to see a problem that I have. So I agree, finding out what the problem is and fixing it. All right, appreciate that guys. And thanks for our listeners for sending in your poll results. We're gonna switch at this time to our In the News segment. Uh, in the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Um, so today's in the news segment concerns the release of a couple of important final rules I wanted to share with you guys. You might be aware of them already. Uh, these include the 2021 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, or MPFS, as well as the 2021 Outpatient Prospective Payment System, or OPPS, final rule. You know, mostly CDI professionals are concerned with the IPPS rule, but you know, there are a couple interesting and important items in here that CDI professionals should be aware of. Um, the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule uh, does contain some large changes to physician E&M payment rates. And I'm showing you an article here from um, Medscape. Again, I will include the links to these articles um, in the show notes. Um, there are some, this article here does summarize some of the Specialties that are in line for increases as well as decreases to E&M payments. So specialties in line for increases include allergy and immunology at 9%, endocrinology is 16% increase, family practice 13%, general practice 7%, geriatrics 3%, hematology and oncology 14% increase, internal medicine 4%, nephrology, physician assistant, psychiatry, rheumatology, and urology are all getting bumps this year, which is great news. Uh, but there are some specialties in line for cuts. We've got anesthesiology, minus 8%. Likewise with cardiac surgery, emergency medicine, 6% decrease, general surgery, 6% decrease. Others uh, include infectious disease, neurosurgery, PT and OT, plastic surgery, radiology at a, at a hefty 10% cut, as well as thoracic surgery. 
at an 8% payment reduction. So some things to keep in mind of um, the, the rule also does reduce the documentation burden on physicians by reducing the number of elements that must be captured in order to code a level of service. Um, I put this here, it's probably worth sharing this news with your physicians. Um, I will say that these payment reductions, probably not surprisingly, are being hotly contested by the AMA or medical, American Medical Association, and there has been a new bill introduced in the House to block these changes. So we'll see what happens there, and we'll continue to monitor the news. Um, the other item I mentioned was the OPPS rule, outpatient perspective, which pertains to hospital outpatient services. Um, this is an article here from Fierce Healthcare. I'm gonna just scroll down to uh, where the, the news starts. Uh, the OPPS final rule, meanwhile, um, among this, so there's many provisions in this, it's a lengthy rule, just like the inpatient rule, but begins a phase out of the inpatient only list. Uh, Erica, I know you're one of your friends, um, Oh gosh, he's 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 on talk ten. Ron, Ron Hirsch. Ron Hirsch is all over. Mm -hmm. this. <laughs> I've been, I think I might have seen the news from him and tweeted it out uh, initially. But uh, you know, so this art this article from Fierce does a nice job, sort of summarizing with the issue here. So the inpatient only list again. Um, these are procedures that CMS would only pay for. It was about seventeen hundred odd procedures when performed on inpatients. This this list is going to be phased out over the next three years. They're starting with about 300 musculoskeletal related services next year. Um, the, this OPPS rule would kind of put the onus on doctors and patients to make the best decisions about the most appropriate sites of care based on what makes the most sense for the course of treatment. And the patient without micromanagement from Washington, that's a quote from CMS Administrator Seema Verma. Um, hospital groups are of course uh, worried that this change could imperil patient safety. Uh, the AHA has a comment here that the appropriate setting for procedures should be determined with a focus on patient safety and peer-reviewed evidence. Um, CMS is proposing to remove certain procedures that do not have data to support the appropriateness of their performance in the outpatient setting. Um, so an interesting couple of rules changes here. Um, I, I did also pick up on that the uh, apparently RACs will be exempt from reviewing these procedures that are being moved off the inpatient list on the basis of medical necessity so they shouldn't be dinging you for the two midnight rule um, so i would say to monitor your denials regarding the inpatient only list they shouldn't be happening but they probably will um, you know there's a lot more in the oppps rule this this changes to drug pricing stark law there's a lot more in there but this is just a couple i wanted to highlight for our listeners today both sets of these changes are due to be effective january 1st of this coming year so i don't know if you had any comments i covered a lot of information there in a short time erica but any thoughts on some of the changes we might be seeing or will be seeing in 2020 yeah of course, you know you know better than to ask me whether I have an opinion. Um, I think that the I think in the face of COVID nineteen, emergency physicians and infectious disease folks are going to be pretty irritated at getting a payment decrease. Um, I, I would like to think that competent clinicians with integrity admit patients when it is in the patient's best interest, not solely because they landed on a list. But my concern is that this will give auditors an opportunity to try to deny inpatient stays for procedures, which they never would have denied before. 
and appeals, appealing denials is time and resource consuming and just generally sucks the fun out of your job. I wish everyone would just practice excellent medicine, do good documentation, and respond to queries thoughtfully. Quality of care and reimbursement would be optimized, and we would all be better off. And on that note, Brian and Charm, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone out there listening for what you and your providers and your hospitals are doing. It's a very difficult time universally. Please wear your mask, physically distance, and practice frequent good hand washing. I want to see you all alive and healthy at Actus National Convention someday in the near future. Brian, thanks again for having me on. Happy and safe holidays to all. Amen. Thanks, yes, Sarah. agree with you, Erica. Very good. Here, here. Here, <laughs> clapping going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I'm going to take what you just said and put it on a plaque, and I think what we should do is send it out across the United States. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up with just a quick Actus update and then we'll update you on next week's show. So um, we were just talking a lot about COVID-19. Right here on your screen, we have a, of course it flips on me because that's, that's what our banner does, but we've got a survey that we have open, the impact of COVID-19 on CDI's second surge. So we, we did a COVID-19 survey early this year, back in, I think, uh, April and shared the results with you all in May. Uh, we're doing a second survey to see where folks are. It's a total of 13 multiple choice questions. According to our survey tool, it only takes three to four minutes to complete. We do uh, these some interesting questions we're asking on remote work, additional tasks being asked to staff, staff impact, and projected short and long-term impacts of the pandemic on CDI work. It's an anonymous survey. We're gonna share this data with you all. Um, looks like early February. So please take three to four minutes and, and um, go ahead and take that survey. We'd love to get your, your commentary. If you're not an Actus member, uh, just mention what you're waiting for. We've got 6,800 of your peers and counting. We'll sign up today. All right, so that will do it for today's edition of the podcast. Really appreciate you coming on, Erica. It's great information. Great positive messaging, um, as well as you, Charm. Thanks again for co-hosting. As always, uh, we this we have our final episode of 2020 coming up next week, so we're a little off cadence. We're um, usually this is an every other week show. We're coming on next week, Wednesday, December December 23rd. I've got a CDI professional coming on next week who has been called back to the front lines of patient care. She's a nurse and she's going to be sharing her story. And I thought it was a great way to close the year. That goes your comments, Erica, about the hard work people are doing right now. This is someone who's doing a lot of hard work and pulling 12 hour shifts again at the bedside and is still a CDI professional, absolutely. So check it out, be back here for our last show of the year and for everyone else, uh, thanks again for the suggestions. Your topic today was a suggestion from a listener. So keep those coming at bmurphy at actus.org. We'll see you back here next week. Take care, everyone.